Nice restaurant here, huh? Yeah, it's fine, I guess. What's the problem? Uh, I mean, the food's great, yeah, the ambiance right. is terrific, yeah, yeah. the service is first rate. Yeah, but what lousy plates they serve the food on? You don't like the plates? I hate them. Stupid pattern. Hate these plates. You hate the plates. I'll tell you what I do to plates like this. I pick them up and I Bob? shatter them on the floor. Nuts! Bob, let me try that again. No, Bob, don't... Uh. Oh, for crying out loud, you're making a scene. I'll get it this time. Stop, Connors! Breaking Bad will not be presented at this time. I don't get it! In order to bring you the following special podcast. It's almost live. Still alive. It's alive! A limited podcast series about Northwest Television's legendary TV sketch comedy show. An amazing phenomenon. Featuring intimate conversations with the writers, performers, creators. Rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters, desperados, bushwhackers, hornswagglers, horse thieves, bulldogs, train robbers, bank robbers, ass kickers, shit kickers, and murderers. Your host was one of them. I think I would remember a thing like that. Pat Cashman. What's the matter with you? Almost live. <laughs> it's a real nice surprise. Still alive. Just a real nice surprise. When you talk about anybody, cast, crew, interns of Almost Live, you're not exactly talking about cookie cutter versions of personnel. But if you insist on the cookie analogy, we're talking about every kind you can think of. There were ginger snaps like Nancy Guppy, sugar cookies like Tracy Conway, snickerdoodles like Steve Wilson, peanut butter keister, gingerbread men like Bob Nelson, Ed Wyatt, and Joe Guppy, and animal crackers with nuts like most of the rest of us. But one person, Ralph Bevins, is his own kind of cookie, a mix of ingredients, maybe some chocolate chips, butter, eggs, honey, some extracts, and sometimes molasses. Ralph was the show's chief videographer, director, and editor during much of his best years. He was also an occasional producer and writer, and like his preceding camera wizard, Daryl Suto, also known as Billy Kwan, Ralph also portrayed a signature on-camera character that you couldn't ignore. As he began his career, he was a well-traveled guy around the U.S. until a bit of fate landed him in Seattle. A lifelong fan of all things cinema, Ralph brought a film buff side almost live that helped make it look and feel like a big deal TV show. He's retired now, but he still lives in town with his wife Beth and two kids, neither of them named Ralph. Here's the indomitable, the talented, the beloved, and the incomparable Ralph Bevins. Here's what occurred to me a few days ago, and I don't know why I didn't think of this before. But there was a book written about the show, Almost Live. And a, a really oh. wonderful guy wrote the book, and, he's, uh, and he was well-intentioned. I have no doubt about it. Brian Johnston. Brian Johnston, yes. But here's the thing. He, he took the things that people said uh, and put it into the book. And as a result, the book is what I would call a hagiography mm-hmm. of Almost Live. It, it, it is largely bullshit. And uh, <laughs> and. I, no, it is. I mean, because everybody was so nice, so right. kind, so warm, so afraid to offend uh, any other people that were in the show and, yeah. and all of that. I, I don't know if everybody was totally kind. It's just he chose to kind of give a favorable impression of the show. You know what I mean? Because I remember and I heard Bill. I heard Bill did this, too. 
And after the meeting, it's like, oh my God, what did I say? And it was like calling him and it's like, you're not going to tell this story, are you? <laughs> he goes, no, it'll be fine. No, well, why? But that's my point. Why don't people tell the stories? That's what the, excuse me, that's what the reader wants. And that's what the listener, yeah. the listener of this podcast wants. They want to hear, sorry, <clears throat> I just started some a pack of cigars and I have no trouble with <clears throat> But people want the truth. They don't want fiction, okay? If they want that, they can go listen to some other podcast that's based on some baloney. So at long last, after all the podcasts that have come before this one, mm-hmm. I want this one to be about the truth. And I want, and I thought, if anybody's going to spill it, it's going to be Ralph Bevins. So, Ralph, I want you to vent. Really? I do want you to spill it. I want you to reveal all, be vindictive, be vituperative. You can be gossipy, confabulative, uh, propagandic, brutal, barbarous, savage, mean, wanton, merciless. Uh, uh, Ralph, be catty and malicious and bitter and biting, but just be honest. That, and that's all that I would ask of you. Can, can you do that? Okay, that sounds good. No, I, I won't do that. I, you know, after 25 years, I'm on pretty good terms with every with everyone. You want me to like totally yes. destroy my yes. rapport with every and, yes. and be yes. hated exactly. by the whole almost live Precisely. cast and yes. You've got it. You've got it in a nutshell. It's exactly right. Because, you know, long after we're gone, the, the name of this podcast is Almost Live Still Alive, but it won't always be a, an apt title let's face it time marches on it waits for no man and we'll all shuffle off this mortal coil someday and wouldn't it be nice if at least there was one person that person being you that told the truth about that show and the people in it well let's do another one and um I'll use we're not, we're not recording this, by the way. Oh, we're not. Uh, this okay, is all good. a prelude to when I actually hit the record button. So, oh, so if that's what if that's what's worrying you right now, let me allay your fears. This is this is all just uh, you and me talking like two friends. We, we we don't know what you're actually going to do when we start recording, but I hope you'll be honest. You know, you never lied to me before. Mm, not not exactly. No, no. So, so this will be okay. the first time. Yeah. So are you ready? Sure. Okay. And recording. And now somewhere in the Mediterranean on his $50 million yacht is Ralph Bevins. Ralph, um, where were you born? Where did you, where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Washington, D.C. Oh, where an attempted coup took place in January of 2020 in the Capitol building. Washington, D.C. is situated on the east coast of the USA along the banks of the Potomac River. The city has an area of just under 70 square miles, but it sure packs a lot in. During the Eisenhower administration, if that tells you anything about my age, and... um, I I was born during the uh, Truman administration, if that tells you anything. (laughs) Okay, I was lying. It was actually Lincoln. (laughs) So anyway, we moved to Virginia. I went down to Virginia. And no one sent for me I went down to Virginia To see what I could see But then moved to 
uh, Winter Park, Florida, suburb of Orlando. And when I was in the second grade, because my dad moved there to work for Martin Marietta Aerospace. How do you begin to measure the infinite reaches of space? For tomorrow-minded engineers and other professionals, the tools of measurement are knowledge, intellect, imagination, and an infinite curiosity. Martin Marietta wants professionals of that caliber, the kind that helped us fulfill our major role with the Viking lander on the planet Mars. A whole new world of careers on Earth and beyond. So you, so you're uh, living in Florida then? Yes, Florida man, See, Florida I'm, boy, boy. I, I know my geography so well. <laughs> I, I knew as soon as you said Orlando, I said he means <laughs> he means the state of Florida. Yeah, but if I just said Winter Park, you might not. No, I I wouldn't have gotten that for sure. Your dad, what did he do at Martin Marietta? Industrial films. So ah. he he was a photographer and editor. Some time ago, we started a program in an effort to make every member of the Martin Aerospace team realize the importance of his job to the total program and to give us his personal pledge to do his assignment in as perfect a manner as possible. Because we built it right. Everything about it is perfect. We don't need a second chance. So you you came by film work and videography kind of naturally because your dad was into it. Yeah, I don't know how that happened exactly. I mean, but he did have a Bolex 16 millimeter camera at home. The Bolex 16 millimeter reflex offers spring wound filmmaking. Uh, its main limitation is that the wind only lasts about 30 seconds. To compensate for the light loss by the Bolex prism, adjust your exposure index on your light meter by two thirds of a stop. So I did when I was like 12 years old, I did borrow that to make a horrible movie. Um, now those Bolex cameras, they had kind of a key on them, didn't they? You had to yeah, you cranked them, cranked it. Yeah, yeah. No. Cool. So camera. So yeah, I got some early experience. I mean, it was kind of unusual to be, to be shooting something at 16 millimeter. And then yeah. in, um, I was going to a junior college and I made another movie. So yeah, I, I started kind of young. Okay, tell me, about, tell me about that first movie that you made. How old were you? I think it was about 12. <laughs> it was really bad. Does it still exist? It exists. I recently, you know, digitized it, but I deliberately didn't post it on my YouTube channel because hmm. it's just bad. Is it's there called sound? The spider, the spider monster. Is there sound no, there, on it? There wasn't even sound. Yeah. Then that, in that case, I can feature it on the podcast. Here then is a bit of Ralph Bevins, twelve years old, in Spider Monster. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. The um, I was the spider monster. Naturally, because of your eight legs. And, and my makeup was just mascara around my eyes. <laughs> that w that wasn't why you were wearing mascara, Ralph. Let's face it. Okay. <laughs> okay. That was just subterfuge. So then, went, so you made another movie when you went to, where, where did you go to community college? Um, it was Valencia Junior College. Oh, yeah. I, I actually, it, it, well. took a, it, <laughs> it took a long time for me to get a degree. In fact, I didn't get it till 1999. It took really? me from like 1972. Five or something yeah so, it took so me that 1999 long. was when almost live show ended so then you said okay now that my job's over with i'll go back and finish <laughs> no i actually was working on it and going to school during almost live really were you really no, huh. no. and what's your degree in unbelievably psychology psychology yeah now why 
I was thinking in terms of what do I do after this career? And I thought it might be interesting to do that. Yeah. But then it didn't work out. It's like, you don't really get paid anything unless you get a master's. It's right. like, well, I'm not going to spend that much time. So after school. all of that time, you psyched yourself out. Exactly. So what was your first TV job? I worked in a film department. My dad helped me to get the job. He had a contact. So I worked in a film department where, you know, this was all film at that point. Like commercials were on film, movies, yeah. syndicated yeah. shows. Yeah, that's when I started in TV. It was all film. There were no video cameras. Yeah. So... I was responsible for like compiling reels of commercials with like stop leader in between a commercial. So the projector would stop down. Right. And so then, and I also, so that was pretty monotonous. You know, you build the reel, then you tear it down. So, so you're like your station would have, let's say the three o'clock movie and you had to take things out of the movie so that it would finish at five o'clock for the news. Right. Yeah. And every syndicated show, like I, I had to watch every Bewitch, Hogan's Heroes, Partridge <laughs> Family, Star Trek. Space, the final frontier. Oh my but God. after a while, it's like, I don't have time to watch these shows. <laughs> so I would just start cutting somewhere at the beginning of a there was a guy that worked at King TV where you and I both worked. His name was Bill. And that was his job when I first came to King in 1979 or 80. King had a three o'clock movie. And his job was what exactly what you did was to cut things out of movies so that commercials could be right. placed in there and they would end on time. So famously, he was cutting a Marx Brothers movie and he cut out all the stuff that had the guy with the mustache and the cigar uh, <laughs> out of the movie. I welcome you with open arms. Is that so? How late do you stay open? Why, I've never been so insulted in my life. Well, it's early yet. He's had a change of heart. A lot of good that'll do him. He's still got the same face. I could dance with you till the cows come home. On second thought, I'd rather dance with the cows till you come home. So that only the musical parts were left. <laughs> And nobody's supervising him, so that he thought, that ah, that's what I'll do. I'll take this guy out of there. Yeah, I'll have that. the movie will run on time that way. Well, the worst thing I did was they would run White Christmas every year. Right around Christmas time, probably. No, it was in February. of a white Christmas. But anyway, yeah, it's like, why didn't they just program the movie at a time where they could just run the whole thing instead of telling me each year oh you need to cut 25 <laughs> minutes out of the movie it's like why don't you just add it another half hour and just run the whole movie so the first year it's like i thought i would do it a good job and i was just excising like little bits at a time 30 seconds or a minute and so somebody complained about about it looking truncated or whatever <laughs> so the next year okay i'm gonna do a really good job and be like very careful where i cut the first time it was like i was cutting bigger chunks so the second second year they did the same thing and it was like i was cutting smaller chunks so maybe people wouldn't notice <laughs> and so i was kind of proud of that yeah and so then i hear they got a letter it's like someone said you cut the mandy number it's like the mandy i don't even know <laughs> i didn't even look at the movie it just looked something easy to cut <laughs> <laughs> then the next year it's like okay you're cutting you know a half hour out of the movie <laughs> and it was like screw this <laughs> and so i actually i ran through the the credits of the you know the credits at the head of the movie and then i stuck a piece of leader there where the projector stops down and then i just went 30 minutes into the movie 
and started <laughs> started the movie there. So when people watch the movie, it's kind of like, well, they must have started this movie a half hour early because I, I the first half hour is here. <laughs> actually wow. because I just cut it out. And you're just you're kind of like uh, the lowest man on the food chain at the TV station, and yeah. yet you have that been given that responsibility. Yeah, that was a mistake. Yeah, that that was what, the way it was for Bill at King, King TV. You know what you could have done? You could have done. Uh, what was the name of the movie? White Christmas. White Christmas. You should have gone White Christmas Part One <laughs> to be continued next year. <laughs> now you tell me. Yeah, it just occurred to me. But you didn't do that forever. No. How did you get to be a photographer? Well, I had a good friend who worked in the uh, news department as a photographer editor. And I thought that looked like a really interesting job. And they didn't have internships at that time. So I actually created one for myself where I would finish my work, then go into the news department if they needed someone, you know, to, to shoot a news story or whatever. And, and I only had like shot the first news story when they said, um, well, I mean, I didn't shoot, I was just supposed to go along with other photographers for, I don't know how long, you know, hopefully like a month or so, but then they needed a photographer. So it's like, Hey, can you just do this? So it's like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, but so I, I, after doing that a couple of times, they actually thought I did a good job. So when there was an opening then I went to the news department. And so I did that for a couple of years. Cool. What was the name of that station? At that point it was WDBO TV. W. Channel six. Now it's something, and I don't know what it. It went through like three name changes. So, and it's not your fault, is it? The name changes. Y- yeah, yeah. I mean, no. No, that wasn't my fault. Okay, all right. I was long gone. Okay, so anyway, I I wanted to move on because it was too stressful. Actually, you know, you go out and shoot, and you were shooting film, so you come back and you're kind of nervous. You're looking at the film chain, thinking, "Oh my God, I hope this." is exposed properly then you have to wait for a script and you play it back and there's a giant pubic hair right (laughs) right can you say pubic hair no on a podcast no no, i can't believe that but you could yeah i'm not going to all right because you already said it why would i say it i'm gonna have to live with it remember when we were talking before i started recording about being vindictive and caustic Mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing i was looking for and i figure if you're not going to provide it i i need to do it oh you wanted profanity well that's not pro that's not profane no pubic isn't profane no it's not but my kids are going to be listening listening to it and asking me what what does pubic mean tell them it means things that are not private or or pubic (laughs) Yeah, like the pubic broadcasting company, for example. Yeah. All right, so go ahead. So are we about done? No, no, no. We, no, we, we've only been going about six or seven minutes, Ralph. These these can go a longer than that. Why would we be done at just at the point when you first started to shoot film? Because it's it's kind of boring. That wouldn't complete any kind of a story about you, Ralph Bevins if we stopped now. Unless you want to stop. Well, I thought that's the. I thought that part was the part that was more interesting than the whole almost lost. Well, thing. like I said, I I have the luxury. I don't of, think they care. They don't care about that. Okay. Well, let me let me be the judge of that. And this is for my family. I I understand. I understand. Uh, your poor poor family. Uh, anyway, go ahead. So you're working. Uh, uh news, news. yeah that's right it's like i've got to get out of here because it's just too i was going to have a heart attack in another year well no it wasn't too boring it's like it was you'd wait for this you (laughs) went oh the story is boring boring. yeah so let's move along (laughs) you're going to cut off you're going to yeah all of that's going out of here 
So, oh, so then you, uh, I can't remember. Did you become a bus driver after that? What, what happened after that? So I was going to have a heart attack if I kept doing, because, you know, you, you have to wait for the script, you have to edit it. And then it's like, it's like 20 minutes till news time. And a producer's coming in, like yelling. It's like, when are this, when is this going to be done? Are you almost done? It's like, if you would get the hell out of here, I could fit. So it's like, I can't keep doing it. So there was an opening at the same station. They had PM magazine, the syndicated program. PM magazine. Yep. PM PM Magazine was a nationally syndicated show with local hosts all over the country. Each market would do stories, and they'd assemble them all together and put them together in a show so you could do a locally produced, professional, network-grade show five nights a week, right in primetime access. And we used our own local stories mixed in. Same as Evening Magazine. I don't know how many people remember that format pm magazine but like every market had one and it, it wasn't yes. a news show per se but it was fe- they did features uh yes. everything from uh you know restaurant openings to uh celebrity interviews yeah. and, and the like and and what town was this in uh orlando oh, you're still in same station still in orlando okay so yeah it was a cooperative where there was a national office in san francisco and you were just and you, you had were local- right there at disney world you must have gone there a lot huh too much yeah it was so hot you can imagine it hey i got a like, question oh, no we're going to disney we're going to disney yeah and walk i got a because we didn't have a vehicle. i got a question for you sorry are those uh the presidents are, are those are those real people the presidents uh, all of presidents or are those robots? Well, I don't want to be the one to, to tell you that they're actually robots. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. They've got all the uh, presidents there, Washington, Lincoln, Millard, Fillmore, and I guess because they figured they had to, now, Trump. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I think it's like the House of Wax, where they're actual people, but they're not living. Mm. They kind of put wax over dead people. I was hoping that uh, that uh, maybe John Wilkes Booth wasn't that good a shot, and that uh, that really was Lincoln, but... Uh, that's a, that's an aside that doesn't have anything to do with this. So continue on. So yeah. now you're well, working. You'll, a, you'll cut that. Yeah, out. I'll cut that. I'll cut no. that out. So so you're working. This whole thing is probably not going to even no, air. Well, no. If is we it? start recording, it will. But okay, okay. Oh, that's right. But no. we're not. So now you're. Are we going to be soon? No, we got a ways to go here. No, nobody's listening by now. Anyway, Ralph. So we've got. Yeah, that's true. If they were listening, they'd stop. By so now. you're working at PM Magazine. How old a guy are you by mm-hmm. then? Are you in your 20? 25. 25? Okay. You still living in the basement at the house or? <laughs> I was in the basement chained, actually. You know, your kids are listening. Well, they, they're kept chained too. So so you're doing that and life is good. You're yes. producing stories and shooting and editing. Yes. And, then... and that was something I liked about it too. I wasn't just a shooter and editor. I was a field producer and, and you were responsible for um, turning stories, you know, producing stories. So that was good. Cool experience and then so to move on in this business you might move to larger cities larger markets so i took a pm magazine job in chicago 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 that title in town and i worked there for about six months and then they canceled the show 
project was actually the best thing that could happen because I hated it there. I mean, the whole staff, they just hated each other. It, it was really hmm. bad. What, what, um, where, what was the antipathy all about? I don't know. They just didn't like each other. Did they not <laughs> like each other before you came? I, th- <laughs> I think so. Now that you mention it, I'm not sure. Um, but I remember the producer, the producer like walked by the Edipe one day and she just goes, I'm so sorry. Cause I was just sitting there with my head and my hands. It was, it was so depressing. Oh my God. So, so luckily I had gotten a, an offer from Dallas at the same time as I got the offer from Chicago. So I, the guy who took the job in Dallas just coincidentally left that job and went somewhere else. So the job was opening again. So I took it. So I was so thankful for that. So, so now happy. you're in Dallas. So God, you're moving around. In Dallas. Yeah. Did you ever see Dallas from a DC nine at night? Well, Dallas is a duo. We are Dallas is a beautiful sight. And Dallas is a jungle, but Dallas is a beautiful eye. Who was the host of that uh, Dallas PM magazine show? Uh, the most notable one actually was Lisa Gibbons. Lisa Gibbons, her, her. I remember her. Yeah, yeah. she was did, great. Did She's you uh, so professional? Did, did you and her have a little thing going on, or uh, no? She did with the other host. Oh, but that was a flagship. St- WFAA was a great station to work for. You know, it was one of the best stations in the PM Magazine Cooperative too. Mm. So that was that was a good experience. But that, but then they they folded. Oh man. And then another station in Dallas picked it up, so I went over there. Man, you are a mover. And then, yeah. And um, so after about nine months, that one folded. I think it was a complete coincidence that I'm in common with all yeah. these. Yeah, know, it's, yeah that's probably folding. just. I don't a, think it was That's me. just a coincidence, coincidence. that uh, almost yeah. live folded, too. Uh, but we'll get get to that later (laughs) so so then well that one i admit that dallas job uh ended and then what then what happened when did you finally get to seattle so they were starting up evening magazine which which was a pm magazine type of show just with a different name well the national office that on kpix the original station that was an evening magazine i don't know where why every other station was called a PM magazine. Why didn't they just call them all evening? Because PM means evening, doesn't it? Okay, so I come up to Seattle, um, an interview with Drew Keller. While I'm up in Seattle, he's showing me around. And um, Mike Boydston is like in one of the editing bays, um, editing an almost live Mike show. Boydston, uh, another great uh, photographer, cinematographer. Yes. Who- yes, he was and is a great cinematographer so he was editing almost live and i was watching what he was doing it's like this is what i should be doing now why did you think that why why did you think that would be better than working on a an evening or a pm magazine well because it was funny Mm. comedy i mean i had shot you know super eight films when i was a kid too i mentioned the other ones but well in the 16 millimeter film there was a film i showed to the whole high school and that was a comedy about actually i'm surprised they allowed it to be shown because it was about blowing the school up which i mean you could never get away with that now no you could never get away with blowing the school up now no back then it was okay to blow the school up but not now yeah right well we kept having bomb scares and and the premise was that they get all these bomb scares and finally they give up oh it's just another bomb scare but then there's an it's blown up 
A friend of mine, in fact, he's my best friend in high school, years later, I mean, many years later, told me one day, he said, you know, you remember that uh, bomb threat we had back in you know, our senior year? I said, yes, I remember that. They, they evacuated the entire school. He said, yeah, I called that in. <laughs> and and it's on his resume yeah, he called it in because he had not studied for a big test <laughs> and the only thing he could think of is i i i'm gonna flunk this test unless i figure out a way to get me out of it and he <laughs> did that he called but it took him 30 years to admit to it and he wasn't exactly <laughs> that's probably what they all yeah were. they yeah, all were could have been something like that had a test that day so so where was i where yeah was so I? now you're uh in uh, Oh, comedy. So I've always, not only did I like making comedy films, but I've just always been from a young age into com comedy, like um, um, movies, like even going back to science, like Max Sennett. Yes, Max Sennett, a bit player and director in Hollywood's early days. Sennett launched his own studio in 1912, the Keystone Film Company. Nobody's idea of an art film studio. Keystone specialized in slapstick comedies. You know, the this book I checked out of the lab, they were film books like Harpo Marx's autobiography. Yeah, I love that book. And I read so, that book too. Well, called Harpo Speaks. Film or, yeah. Yeah. Yes. And there was one called, it was Max and it's King of Comedy or something. Yeah. And actually I used to keep, I checked that out all the time. And one time I ran into um, Leonard Malton, you know, the yeah. critic. And I told him that and he said, yeah, I did the same thing. I kept checking that book out. So, too. so you, you, thing. and I knew this about you since I worked with you a long time, that you really are a film buff and you love film uh, and are kind of a student of it, especially older film. I wouldn't say student. My, uh, well, you're the same, right? My, yeah, I gravitate towards old. My grandkids movies. come to my, our house and I say, hey, you guys just watch a movie. And they say, nah, nah, we don't want to watch a movie with you <laughs> because all you watch are black and white movies. And they, and they, oh, my daughter hates. She won't watch. Yeah, a black same with them. Movie same either. with them. Yeah, but I just, I, I just like the look of it. I just, uh, I was yeah, reading a yeah. book uh, about Mike Nichols, who decided that he wanted to shoot his one of his very first movies, "Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf," uh, in uh -huh, in black and white, white, because he, uh, part of the reason was that Elizabeth Taylor was in the movie. She was only in her thirties at the time. And he wanted her to look middle-aged and haggard. Mm -hmm. And if they had shot it in colors, it would have, the makeup would have been too obvious, but in black and white, uh, it looked great. So that as much as anything was his decision to shoot in black and white, which, which I just love the look of. Hey, uh, George, tell him about the boxing match we had. Christ. George, tell him about it. You tell him, Martha, you're good at it. Is he all right? <laughs> oh, sure. See, George and I had this boxing match a couple of years after we were married. <laughs> a boxing match? The two of you? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, the two of us, really. <laughs> I can't imagine it. Well, it wasn't in a ring or anything like that, you know. Oh. See, uh, Daddy was on this physical fitness kick. Uh -huh. So he had a couple of us over one Sunday, and, and we all went out in the back, and, and Daddy put the gloves on himself, uh -huh. and he asked George to box with him. Uh -huh, yeah. And George.
George didn't want to. <laughs> yeah. So Daddy was saying, come on, young man, what sort of a son-in-law are you? And stuff like that. <laughs> and while this was going on, I don't know why I did it, I got into a pair of gloves myself, oh. and I snuck up behind George, just kidding, and George. yelled, hey, George! And let go with a sort of roundhouse right. Just kidding me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And George wheeled around real quick and caught it right in the jaw. Pow! I'm going to talk about yeah, a black too. and white thing you shot uh, during our time at Almost Live a little bit later because it's one of my favorite pieces ever that you did. So you're at uh, your. So did they hire you at King at that point to, to work mm -hmm. on Evening Magazine? Yeah. So I did that a couple years. Luckily for me, Mike Boydston left to go work for, um, it's like a long form video production company, Miramar. Oh, yeah. And then Mike, Mike and subsequently so went to work on the Bill Nye the Science Guy show too. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So that left an opening. And so Bill hired What me. year would that have been was roughly? Great. Well, it was a little convoluted because I kind of worked some for almost live and some for evening. So, but it was around 1991 okay. when I did, like produced my first. Story. Do you remember the? Do you remember the first almost live thing you shot? Oh, that I shot. Yeah. I want. I think it might have been a training film, like how to buy a pizza. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. Almost live training films presents number 14 in a series: ordering pizza at halftime. To properly order a pizza at halftime, the following players are required. One guy on the phone. Two guys who hate olives, mushrooms, peppers, and every other topping except for Canadian bacon and pineapple. A dominator to take charge. A Pink Floyd fan. <laughs> Action begins between the phone man and the objectors. Yeah, I'd like to order uh, a large pizza. Man! What? Two, two mediums. mediums! No, two mediums is more expensive. The dominator steps in to take charge. No, a large is cheaper. Get a large. We'd like a large pepperoni no, no, with, with olives. Large. What? Canadian, Canadian bacon. Yeah, yeah, with pineapple. No, not everyone likes Canadian bacon. Pepperoni. The objectors appeal for help. You want pepperoni or bacon? I don't care, man. Oh, it's ordered. The pizza is ordered. They're trying to decide who should pay for it. Yeah, yeah, I remember if that. they paying for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so that was the first thing. I so did. are you still alternating between Evening Magazine and uh, Almost Live, or are you a full-fledged yeah, Almost for, Live guy? Well, I was kind of off and on, and then I started, I think, it, you know, not 1991 or 92. And then there was a time where Daryl Sudo, mm -hmm. another great photographer, um, we alternated. Do you remember that? Between, I would shoot Evening for a while, and he'd do Almost yeah. Live. Yeah, well, there was so much, yeah. uh, so much to do and not enough staff. Yeah. I kind of wanted to bring up a couple other guys too, if it came up. It's like Gary Harper and Gary Smith. They were two other production photographers. Yeah, the Gary twin. Gary Harper did the like the best almost live opening at the Weathered Wall. I remember that. Yeah, just fantastic. It was yeah, really great. Just, the Weathered Wall. I don't suppose it still is there anymore, but it's kind of a nightclub yeah. bar thing, and we shot uh, the mm -hmm. opening on film too. By the way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was. That's mainly why he did it. He should have done it because he. He was very proficient with film. I love I love Gary Harper. No, he was one of my favorite people. Me Gary's got to be boy. I bet Gary's in his eighties now. He's he's retired long ago. But God, what a great film shooter he was. He really was, and he was like invaluable invaluable to me if I needed advice or technical help because yeah. I'm not a real technical guy. So he was. Yeah, he was pretty pretty great, and I'm glad you brought his name up. I haven't mentioned it yet on this podcast but and and then gary smith as well another 
Yeah. Another guy. Didn't he do a classic bit called mime hunting? Didn't he shoot that I, one? I'm not I sure. Think so. I think so. Today we will be hunting the street mime. Once a comparatively rare species, the street mime has blossomed in recent years to become an urban pest. Its natural enemy, police brutality, has been somewhat curtailed in recent years. Therefore, a hunting season has been opened to effectively manage the street mime population. Ed and I headed for downtown, where the mimes gather to feed off spare chain. So is that it? We talked about almost live now. Um, well, I, I, we can wrap this up if you want to, Ralph, but I thought we would go a little longer because I want to talk about okay. some of the specific work you did. I have some other, some other podcasts I'm scheduled to okay. do today. All right. So, well, well, I, but I, I, no, I can bump those. I won't, I won't hold you much longer, but okay. it, it is your love of film and your uh, attention to technique that I think made you perfect for almost live. And and I've always said this, that the, that's the good way of putting the it. shooting and the editing of the show as much as the writing is a crucial part of, of why the show worked when it worked. In other words, and even for me personally, I always felt that editing a piece after I'd shot it was part of the writing process because I could build pauses yeah. in, I could right. choose different takes, uh, something that looked funnier, right. add a bit of music or a sound effect and all made it better and your attention to detail but you're a master editor I'm i mean you edit do you generally you master oh, editor oh. you generally edited your pieces i mean you were you're so good oh no, thank you for you're that yeah i did than me i did and it was sort of selfish because i wanted you know it's like you've carried this football down to the 10 yard line you you want yeah. to take it into the end zone yourself well you would have shot your own pieces if, if it was yeah possible, i would have uh, i, I would have well that's why i wanted to produce pieces so i could have i mean that's why i did to have total control or over yeah. something you know writing producing shooting editing that, and that was the fun of the show i mean if you think about let's go work at saturday night live or some bigger production uh you uh, would be a small cog in a big wheel and you might get to do a little bit of the job but then you'd have to hand it off to somebody else who then would hand it off to somebody else and i loved the the smallness of our of our staff that yeah. you got to do yeah. everything you, yeah. I mean, you were a writer as well as a shooter and an editor and all of that. Where else would you get a chance like that? It, it, it made it really cool. But what I loved about working with you, Ralph, and and um, and it, it, it used to be the subject of some joking, is that, oh, my God, Ralph, oh, man, he takes forever to get. And you and I have talked about this before. You're going to cut this part out. Yeah, so. no, we're done. Yeah, I've stopped recording quite a while ago. No, just the, just the negative stuff, yeah. though. Yeah, like I said, uh, but you were, and this is always a pejorative, a perfectionist, but I mean it in the nicest sense of the word, because you love film, you're an aficionado of it, you're, you're nuts about lighting things correctly and making them look big time. We Almost Live could have been a small time production, but it never looked like one because of guys like you, because you, to the annoyance of People like <laughs> people like me and others who are the, just the writers and the on-camera people. We thought, oh shit, I got, I got to go to lunch in a couple of minutes here. I wouldn't. Why is he still setting things up here? It's driving me nuts. And, but but yeah, then on the other end issue. of it, then it looks great, and that's why it looked great because you took the time to make it special because you gave a, a damn about how it would look uh, when it hit the air and maybe only in long lens of hindsight do we do we appreciate that now I'm on a man 
Well, I appreciate that you had a change of heart about this, and I was wondering, did that happen like, like last no, week? No, no, I I knew it at the time. It's been a while. <laughs> no, oh, I knew it at the time, but I, I just I, well, I don't like to. I also don't like the to use the term perfectionist. I like to to use the phrase pursuit of excellence. Ooh, that's good. Let me write that one down. Pursuit, <laughs> pursuit, per p e r suit s o o t. Okay, got it. Um, it was it was a challenge though, you know. And I and I I did push for just making it something I could I would be proud of. You know what I mean? And maybe sometimes it was overboard that it doesn't need to be this produced. Well, uh, but I also like I like doing the quick and dirty ones too. But but some I I, I guess I was going for some like a cinematic approach yeah, a lot of yeah. times. Yeah. You know? Which brings me to uh, an example of it, and this is one of my favorite pieces. I think Joel McHale wrote the piece. Uh, then we kind of tweaked it later, but it was a film noir piece. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? That you shot. Well, you wrote so, that. No, and, and, and Joel wrote it, and then then he I did? He did? then I screwed around with it later, changed some things on it. But I think Joel. It, and you were the performer. Yeah, it was Joel's that, idea, yeah, and, and I was a detective. And uh, right. it's shot in black and white. It's just a callback to those old film noir detective type movies where I'm sitting Which sitting in an office, I'm smoking a cigarette, and Tracy mm-hmm. Conway comes into the door, uh, comes in the door, and she is a femme fatale. She's a woman in distress, and she's trying to tell me how she needs my help. And I never speak a word aloud. It's all my thoughts. <laughs> right. That? Oh, it was so just good. Me. It was brilliant. New York City. The only city I know where you can hear 20 different languages in one day and still not know anybody. And then, that's when she appeared. How long had she been standing there? And had I been picking my nose? She was gorgeous, just the way I like them. She sat down. I was glad I'd moved the whoopee cushion. I guess you're wondering why I'm here. There seems to be a man following me everywhere I go. Mr. Mallory, do you think that I should be worried? Worried? I didn't know the meaning of the word, so I thought I'd better look it up. Let's see here. Curried, furried, scurried. Wait a minute. This is one of those damn rhyming dictionaries. But it looked so good. It just had a great look to it that we'd never done anything on the show like that before. And uh, and I remember you, we shot it in the studio. Uh, yeah. And you brought in, uh, you know, we brought in a background with, so that, that it looked like a real room of a guy's detective office. Mm-hmm. And it just had a real style to it. And I think Joel comes in at the end of it in a, in a, in a oh, cameo right. role. But uh, the look of that piece is one that I was so pleased with afterwards because you took so much Thanks. care to make it look, look real. And it's, maybe it's a coincidence, but I've never forgotten this. About a month or two months later, uh, on Saturday Night Live, they did a film noir piece that was so similar to what we had already done. That, that really? it was. Oh, do you think they ripped it I off? I kind of think it had some kind of influence. That was when people were starting to share things via the internet. And so it would have been easy for it to have fallen into the gaze of somebody else uh, on the other side of the country. I can't, I don't have any proof of that, but it was more than a coincidence. I thought it was so, the bit was so similar that they did. Well, that happened to me one time. I saw an, a Saturday Night Live bit and I said it was identical to the beginning of a piece that I had produced. 
It was like Santa gets shot. Do you remember yes, that? Yes, I one? remember that one. I told him it was just a horrible accident. I mean, how do you think I'm going to feel? For the rest of my life, I'm the guy that shot Smokey the Bear and killed the Easter Bunny. Come on, honey. Let's just go home and try and have a nice evening, okay? Okay. okay. So, let's see at the end. Santa gets shot. You kind of gave away the whole piece. <laughs> that's, <laughs> oh, well. the, that's the ending of it. But I saw a bit, well, you remember at the end, you wake up, you hear a sound yes. and you wake yeah. up. What is it? Did you hear that? And then you, you hear a, a shot fired. Hey! And then you go down and then I won't give away who, who you shot. Well, it's too, it's but too in the late. Saturday, You've already done that. Well, maybe people have forgotten by now how I started the story out. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to cut, I'm going to cut all that out. You're going to cut. Probably cut out. Once I finally start recording, that is. Yeah, right. So anyway, in the Saturday Night Live bit, they start out how my piece ended with with you guys were in bed and you hear some rustling and then you go down and shoot Santa. So in this bit, it's it's exactly the same shot at the beginning of it where you hear the sound and it goes down and it's Lassie. Lassie was shot instead of Santa. It's like, how did they even see this? I mean, this is totally ripped off. And no one believes me if I tell. Well, story, you don't but, know. Yeah. You don't know, but you wonder. You do wonder. That bit you were talking about begins with me, and and it turns out I have shot Smokey the Bear, right. Smokey's Link. That's how it starts. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then, yeah, then I go to court. I I had no idea. No idea. <laughs> what about the hat? And he was carrying a shovel for God's sake. And this isn't the first time you've had trouble with firearms, is it, Mr. Hamlin? Objection, Your Honor. This line of questioning is totally irrelevant. Overruled. And I'm referring, of course, to the Easter Bunny, who isn't around any longer to speak in his own behalf. He was white and he was small and he was going really fast. He was five feet tall and carrying a basket of chocolate eggs. Oh, yeah. Anyway, we've gone on too long about that, but you're right. Yes. It, it is, and I've heard jokes that we wrote for the John report that wound up on mm -hmm. the Tonight Show too. That one, the jokes that were not used on our show somehow found their way to the. They were such identical jokes that I'm, I'm convinced yeah. somehow yeah. Yeah. somebody sold them to uh, the Tonight Show. But anyway, so Ralph, you did well. You did some tremendous work on that show and you oh yeah you were insulted here's another one because i was taking too long oh, that's right here's another one that i i loved this was it was a bit that i did with joel McHale. uh bob nelson wrote them i just thought it was a brilliant idea the idea is that i am a, a, a apparently a really badass guy I, I i smoke i'm slovenly looking uh my hair's greased back i look for all the world like a gangster and Joel is my dim-witted sidekick. Yeah. And uh, it turns out that uh, despite what you would think initially watching this uh, this miscreant that I am playing, I'm actually a good guy that is trying to help people. <laughs> right. But I do it in such a such a weird way that you think he's a bad man. And and so I remember this beginning of the very first time we did that. We did this bit three times. And I and I remember that uh, the producer of the show, Bill Stanton, didn't much care for the bit. He was discouraging <laughs> yeah. of us shooting two other uh -huh. two other times. 
Uh, and I don't know why, huh. because I loved it. I thought it was it's yeah, still one it's of good. my favorite bits. But mm -hmm. uh, you wanted to set a tone at the beginning of the bit that would set up the the sort of menace of this guy. He wanted to be uh -huh. suspenseful. And oh, my God, this guy is trouble. There is trouble. So you wanted to do a simple little right to left dolly shot at the beginning that really looks good. But uh, we were we were rolling our eyes thinking, oh, come on, let's just shoot it. Just put the tripod down and let's just shoot it as it is. We don't need the little dolly shot at the beginning, which was cinematic, of course, and you loved that. Uh, but when I look, yeah, we should, we shouldn't have done When that. I look back at the bit, I thought, man, of course, that's exactly what it needed. It needed that kind of, and it added some kind of uh, malevolence to the, to the scene that, that was exactly set the tone right from the start. Hey, Lenny, what are you, what are you, what are you thinking about? You ever wondered what a gun like this could do to somebody, Ernie? Hey, Lenny, have you ever... Have you ever... Uh, have I ever what? You, you know, have you, have you ever... Uh, you, you have I ever trapped a man in an alley, pinned him against a wall, and then gotten right up into his face and said, you are a very special person, a bright light in the universe, and then given him five dollars and told him to pass the love along by doing something nice for a fellow human being? Have I ever done that? Yeah, you've done that? I think you've done it. I, I, I know you've done it, Lenny. You've done it, haven't you? <laughs> Let's take a little walk. Okay. You understood. You didn't write all the bits, obviously, but you understood how they needed to be presented in, in a photographic way. I don't. Think, I think it was just an accident. It was. Oh. I don't think I knew. Okay, what I'll I was take doing. all of that praise out of this podcast, too, man. There's not going to okay. be much left because you're going to be. Well, there's. But we haven't even started yet. No, thought. but if I was recording, I would take that. If you part were, out. you would have. You know. Okay, so we've. I there's much more we could talk about almost live, but but yeah. uh, then. But it was tough. It was kind of tough as a shooter, you know. It's like, but I'm kind of glad we took extra time because now it's all online. You know what I yeah. mean? So now that I see it, it's like okay, I'm glad I'm not totally. I'm not totally humiliated when I look at these pieces that it's like, we went to some trouble because at the time, you know, it was tough because you'd have a whole cast, you know, of a bit and they, everyone's waiting around, you know, when I'm trying to do dolly moves or whatever. And fixing um, the lighting. Yeah. Fixing the light, which was really, yeah, it probably was longer than it needed to well, take. People think, people, I think, <laughs> That's my I think fault. people think that we had, you know, we had guys that did lighting. We had an audio man. We had, uh, you know, grips and best boys and the whole yeah. crew of people. Most of the time, it was just you. You were doing all of it. You were shooting it. You were lighting it. You were running the sound. And then later you would edit it. So, I mean, it, talk about a bare bones production. That to yeah, me is what's so sure. amazing yeah. when I look back at it. There's no self-aggrandizement on my part about that. It's, it was a total team thing, but man, you, you think yeah. about how did they do that? How did we pull that off? And, and yeah, it was week tough. after week. It was just amazing. It really was. Well, what a privilege to get. Yeah, and we're it. shooting for the a couple of days later. It's airing. Yeah, you know, which was well, one thing that was time consuming too was that we were shooting on videotape, and you know you would get glitches on videotape. So when we had a good take, we do it again. So everything we did, we were doing multiple takes of it to have a safety. So that was pretty. That was a word consuming. you used a lot. 
let's do a safety. <laughs> we, we, you know, we felt like, oh God, I nailed it. I nailed it. And then you'd go, okay, that was fine. Let's do a safety. And we go, oh, come on. Well, I'm glad I had this opportunity to just say, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. Pat. I'm you're, sorry. you're forgiven. And as usual, okay. you were right. So then, uh, as all thing, good things must, Almost Live it came to a, a sudden end. I don't think anybody saw it coming. Wow, we're going there already? So what happened to you well, can I, after that? Can I interrupt for a second? Uh, yeah, for a second. Maybe, maybe you could cut something else out and include this story. Like maybe take out the boring film department and White Christmas. Okay. Did I finish that story? I I don't remember it, and I didn't record it. The year before that, it was like I went to all this... I had a little difference in perspective on that the story didn't go to hell at the end. I mean, the story, the show, I thought the show, I mean, I remember this time that, um, I don't know. I thought that it was kind of losing steam near the end a little. Um, Yeah. This is the kind of controversy I am looking for. This is the, this is the uh, spill it, reveal it, vent it, vindictive gossipy stuff I was hoping for. (laughs) So go ahead. Continue being malicious. Well, now now it reminds me of a funny thing that was kind of stupid on my part, where it was like they were doing a drawing for something. I don't know what it was. And it's like, um, we're just going to announce on the show that somebody won this contest or whatever. And I said, you can't just say it. You, you should like have a bowl and have names and, and then pull it out and then announce it. It was like, that was pretty stupid. But um, the other thing I was thinking about was, what the what the hell are you talking about right now? <laughs> Cut all that, that makes out. Makes no sense. Well, one thing I thought the show was in tr- in trouble when we did the special. Like over the summer, the the cast really didn't do a lot of production work because it's like nobody got paid. Enough, oh no, you know? no, so we just they we let... goofed around all summer. We were supposed to yes. be, uh, you know, uh, uh, shelving all these bits so we'd be ready to go in <laughs> September. But we did. No, we didn't. But they no. didn't. So they actually hired like a, a freelancer to be producing stories for a special. I, I think it was called Sex, Slugs, and Rock and Roll. I remember that. And so we went through a lot of trouble, you know, a lot of production doing that. They brought in, a, so they brought in a freelancer to be producing stories. His name was like Winlar or something. Oh, do I do that? remember that guy. Yeah. Wasn't he, so, was he a writer? Or a, yeah. Yeah. So he was well, producing stories, even that. though the, yeah. the rest of the crew was just hanging out, you know, doing nothing. They were hire, hiring a freelancer. So anyway, I watched that special and it's like halfway through, it's like, oh my God, they, they haven't sold any spots. They, it was all promo. And that's when I kind of thought, okay, this isn't going to be lasting much longer when we spend all summer producing a special and they didn't sell any commercial spots in it. I, I, I don't remember it that way, but you got, you, you're making sense. But then there was another moment where, you know, cast pitched their stories and we were going to shoot a story, I mean, a sketch in a restaurant. And so the next day it's like, okay, we're going to, John, where are we going to shoot this? <laughs> and he said, oh, I'm ha- having... Hans Eric dress the evening, the evening area. That's going to be our, the restaurant is going to be shot where Evening Magazine has meetings. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. We've gotten to the point where we're not even going out of the building <laughs> to shoot sketches. And so we didn't. Yes, yeah, things got a little contentious See, I, that's, at the end. All right, I think. thank you. This is what you're looking yes, for the dirt. The bitter, the merciless, the biting remarks. Thank you. Yeah. Exactly. Things, I thought things got kind of bad. They were getting difficult at the end. 
I remember someone else was getting aggravated about something about the production of a piece. And I like said, okay, you do it. You know, you be the director of, so, um, okay, I won't direct, we'll go out in the field and you produce it. And then we get back and it's like, oh, sorry, I, I forgot to do this, um, scene that we have to have so we have to go out again you know what i mean there, so there was it, it was getting kind of tough near the end hey before we uh, wrap this up uh yes. i've got to talk about your signature piece the one that you are actually uh, appeared in and you created and it was your idea and it was your baby and i and i won't tell people exactly what your email address is but the name of the bit is in your email address and and it was the uh, and again you're shooting in black and white because you love black and white jet guy action hero who flies free of the bounds of gravity jet guy he's insurance actuary guy morris who fights for truth and justice with a jet and a jacket fly with him now as he lives the adventures of jet guy how many you did like three of them didn't you four of them three three was it three? Oh, like you don't know five actually jet guy harkens back to what would be the the serial that well there was like king of the rocket yeah. man commando cody something like that yes and uh radar men from the moon safety belts fastened fire pilot jets it, it was kind of a convoluted thing where they had that same character in different serials in a tv show you know what yeah I mean? yeah yeah so sometimes they call him Commando Cody and I guess something else and another one. But anyway. So you're, you are, you are Jet Guy. And Jet Guy is a well-intentioned, very serious, very serious person who is out to save the world. But he's not extremely bright. Would that be fair to say? So it's typecasting is what you're saying. No, I, I'm not saying that. But he's not real smart. So he relies yeah. on other people. He's well-meaning. Yeah, oh, yeah, he's very well-meaning. Uh, but he talks to a professor, and you literally in right. one episode talked to the professor from uh, Gilligan's Island, Russell Johnson. Russell, Russell Johnson. Johnson. What are you working on, professor? Oh, hi, guy. Actually, I'm working on something quite unique to help you in your fight against crime. Great. What is it? Here, let me show you. Great. How does it work? Well, it's simple, really. That was so awesome. Yeah. When the previous, it was always Bill Nye, which which was great because he kind of helped me come up with the, the idea. I had the idea, but then he kind of helped me execute it. Like he built the the costume, the helmet, yeah. which was, was like cardboard. It just looked like total. Do you shit. still have it? You know, yeah, you I do. Still have that stuff? Do you have that whole outfit? I think just the jacket oh. and the helmet. But Bill Nye was the professor, and then he wasn't available, so Bill Stanton knew Russell Johnson, and so he called that. That was so that was a highlight of my career. I'm, I'm sitting there acting with Russell. Yeah, Russell Johnson. was uh, living, uh, I think, on Bainbridge Island or somewhere yeah. like that. So yeah. we were in his retirement. We had him on the show a couple of different times. Do you remember what it was it called? Bill Stanton's idea. Um, it was a live sketch. It's like the oh Gilligan's therapy. What's your problem, Russell? <laughs> Well, I, I don't have a problem, but since I played the professor on the very show that your therapy is based upon, I thought you might find it interesting that I was in your audience. Well, now, that's all well and good, Russell, but I'm afraid I'm here to help people with problems, not stroke the ego of some actor. <laughs> you know, but I was on Gilligan's Island. Russell, I got that. What's your problem? I don't have a problem. Oh, I see. Mr. Smart Actor Man has it all figured out, does he? You think you know all the answers, right? Well, you know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like you have yourself a professor complex. I am the professor. Oh, sit down. 
and had Don Wells in it too. That was great. But uh, so, so when are we going to start the real interview? Probably, we're probably never going to get around to it by now. But you were into Jet Guy. I mean, you loved it. Oh yeah. And and didn't yes. you try to actually syndicate Jet Guy? Uh, own the own the uh, property. Hello. Well, I hate to go into this. Well, you don't have to. I but <laughs> when the Comedy Central deal came up, I really wasn't a part of that. I don't think Daryl was either. It's like, I think mostly they just used bits that we'd already yeah, done. Yeah. And um, I don't know, when I was talking to Jim Sharp, it, the interview didn't go well with him. So so we weren't a part of Comedy Central at all, which kind of sucked because it's like, I felt like kind of we had helped pay the dues and then the show goes big time and we yeah. really don't have anything to do with it. And so- um, That's too bad because I mean, I'm just speaking for myself. Uh, I- uh, made about one and a half million dollars on that comedy stuff. <laughs> i heard you were you all were well oh god and you oh, should have been because you guys yeah. got paid oh, man. I just, not well at I all raked it in almost live yeah. show. we all raked it in and then i remember somebody said hey shouldn't we share some of this largesse with like ralph bevins and everybody everybody just laughed and said no you're lying again that's your second lie in this podcast this one that was really a horribly uh, mean and uh, savage uh, thing you said it was barbarous really what you said about oh i didn't the, say i was bitter you're did bi i you're bitter about being <laughs> left out of the comedy central thing i love that well a little maybe not i don't no, know you didn't oh say yeah because it's like it we pay through. all these dues and then we're Loud the doctors are the only ones kind of left out of it this might be the most acrimonious and grievance laden podcast yet so um so i met with jim sharp and, and it was like well i don't know if, if you're going to use this bit okay. that i yeah i, I did you know it's like and about you know jet guy because i wanted to well i should get paid maybe something if you take the segment that i produced you know, and run it. And he goes, uh, we'd never use that. It's like kind of insulting. So I, I did register it at that point because I, I thought I want to have possession of this thing concept I came up with. Do I sound bitter? No, no. You sound magnanimous and content. No, we're not going to air. We're not going to air that piece of shit. Hey, speaking of that, I really do. We do really do need to start recording here pretty soon. But I wanted to ask you, we know that after Almost Live, you yes. worked for 20 years for the, yeah, uh, no one's heard for of. the city of Seattle. They have a TV station, Seattle Channel. Yes. And, and mostly worked, ironically enough, with Nancy Guppy for years on her Art Zone show. Action! We put together a new episode of Art Zone with Nancy Guppy every week to tell you about the incredible art that surrounds us all the time. I had great opportunities there, I have to say. It's just the po the problem That's was the political to... part of, of my job, was, which of that... course I'm there working for the city <laughs> and have no interest in the city, you know, Seattle city politics after, you know, after. Yeah, I was no, I get it. Exposed to it for a while. It's like, geez, this is boring. These meetings are really boring and I don't even know what they're talking about. This resolution for what? Yeah, I had an idea at one point that why don't we kind of resurrect a type of almost live show on the Seattle channel? Oh, I didn't know that. And, but then I quick then I quickly realized, no, no, we can't do they they'll they'll clamp yeah. down on anything that's the least bit controversial or criticizes the city council mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah. So forget about it. It would it never could air uh -huh. there. Uh, but before we wrap yes. up, Rob, I got to ask you. Well, working with Nancy uh, was wonderful. Working for Art Zone, for sure, Art Zone. And we never got into uh, some of the other stuff about 
what a prima donna Tracy Conway was <laughs> and how she would scream at people all the time and how Bob Nelson's uh, thought it was funny to punch people all the time. And uh, we, we don't have time for all of that, but I want to ask, I still love, I still love them all. Yeah. Yeah. And you controversial as they were, but you produced, you tried to produce, I should say the <laughs> only sketch that was oh yeah unaired. It may not be the only sketch that was never aired, but it was censored and and the title alone makes me laugh so hard and and you thought you could sell it and may i tell <laughs> that's the irony i'm going to tell people what the name of the bit was yes. this it was called the guide for f***ing morons <laughs> but i couldn't get you to do the voiceovers for it because you were afraid somebody would have you know no i excise that somehow no i can't then... i couldn't say that but i couldn't say that and even if we were going to bleep it like like you said i i was kind of a wimp and i thought oh somebody will yeah. somebody will get the original of this and they'll yeah. put it out yeah. there and I cashman's that. a potty mouth and they'll fire him from his <laughs> radio show and all of that people would post it no big deal today but 25 years ago you know <laughs> but man what a great title it just makes me laugh guides for dummies guides for idiots simple yet effective books that have improved the lives of millions but how about you this is still too hard are you intimidated by idiots has dummies got you dumbfounded then you need the guide for fucking morons huh so 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 you pitched this at a writer's meeting and i think everybody <laughs> fell out of their chair when you when you pitched it but but of course it couldn't air uh and if you had to bleep it then it would lose lose half of its impact and i guess we did bleep it but it never i mean i produced but it but it never aired no but i bleeped it in the version i actually had to sit down you know bill would have run it and I really take pride that I did produce like the only sketch that didn't air or was censored <laughs> from the program. I like that. But I had to sit down. Bill Stanton would have approved it, but I had to sit down with the um, production man. What was his job? Jay Cassio. Jay Cassio. What, yeah. But what was his exact, exact title? Oh, I don't know. Exact title. King of the world. I had to sit down with him and watch it with him. And at the end of it, he goes, so, so what do you think? And I go, probably you're not going to let me air this. And he goes, yeah, I don't think so. But I love the bit. I did too. Do you want me to read the first part of it? Because it's pretty funny. Yeah, I yeah think. go ahead. It's like guides for dummies, guides for idiots, simple yet effective books that have improved the lives of millions. But how about you? And then we cut to Bob and he looks, drops the book down in disgust. And he says, this is still too hard. And the voice of, are you intimidated by idiots? Has dummies got you dumbfounded? Then you need the guide for effing morons. So I, th I like that. Oh, this two-volume set will tell you everything you need to know <laughs> and language even you, an effing moron, will understand. It's been a treat talking with you. Let's do this again, and, and I will record it next time. But I did want to conclude with saying how grateful I was to work with you and the other colleagues at um, Almost Live. You're brilliant, you're genius, and I'm very grateful for it. It was a great group of people. Very, very lucky. Okay, I did record that part. So thank you. You are very welcome. Check guide. The Almost Live, Still Alive podcast, produced and edited by Morris Patrick Cashman. Technical director is Dave Tavers. 
This program was made possible in part by the 12th century nun and mystic Hildegard von Bingen, inventor of spoken language, and by Emil Berliner, creator of the microphone. And I'm your announcer, that kid from Sluggy, Chris Cashman. I'm learning to fly around the clouds. I have something new in your fight against crime. What goes up? Great. What is it? Must come down. It's my transporter ray device. I'm learning to fly. How does it work? Come here, I'll show you. Amazing. How interesting. I'm